Approximately three weeks ago, we assembled on a Sunday evening, and Brother David was the one that was tasked with preaching God's Word that evening. And as you may recall, I know that you memorize every sermon that both he and I preach, and you know the titles of them going back for weeks and weeks and weeks. But he talked about the uniqueness of the church. He talked about the importance of the bride of Christ and did a good job of introducing us to the concept that the church is an important organization. It's the most important institution ever created wherein men and women can be gathered together in the name of Jesus the Christ to glorify the King of Kings. And as we have sang tonight, as we have shared with each other, the fact is, is when we sunder part, when we leave church services, there's a little bit of pain, discomfort, because we're leaving the people that we care about. That's how important the church is. So I wanted to continue with that thought both this evening as well as, Lord willing, a couple of weeks from now, as we're going to look at a two-part study on the subject of the church and churches. And this is a sermon or a series of two sermons that you will likely find familiar, I would say, to the vast majority of those who are present. But I'm targeting three particular groups of people tonight. One, non-Christians, those who are present here tonight that have never named the name of Jesus, or those who maybe are from a denominational background that are familiar with the concept of church A, B, or C, and the idea that all churches are just the same and believe and practice the same. We'll talk about that in a few moments a little bit further. The second group of people that I'm really thinking about this evening are those who are newer saints. Whether you be young Christians or whether you be young people who are Christians, because those may be different things to different people, these are messages that are important to make sure that you are grounded in the faith. And then I'm talking to those who are a little more seasoned as Christians. Maybe you've been a saint for 10 years or 20 years or maybe for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 percent of your life. You say, I've been a Christian most of my life because you need to be able to teach these things to others. Now, in qualifying the sermon with those three groups or those three audiences, you may say, wait a minute. That means I'm included somehow. And that's true. So this is a sermon for everybody, including for me, because these are things that I need to be reminded of as well. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, where we're going to read from in just a moment. We're glad you're here tonight and hope that we can do some help both tonight and, Lord willing, the second Sunday of June when we gather together and I'll conclude this series then. When we think about average thoughts about churches, it kind of goes back to some of the things that Brother David pointed out three weeks ago tonight. Some would say, worship at the church of your choosing. Others would say that all roads lead to heaven. That it doesn't matter what church you are a part of. It doesn't matter what organization you go to. It doesn't even matter how often you go there. Just the fact that you are affiliated with some sort of a church. Or even some would go as far as say, well, you don't even have to be a part of a church. You just have to believe in God. And of course, there are others who say you don't even have to believe in God. So we've got the whole rampant of beliefs that we are up against in trying to share the message of the gospel. Some would suggest that we're all serving the same God, and who are you to judge me in serving that particular God? 
And some would measure the success of a person's spiritual journey by the mere fact that they are sincere in their faith. You recall in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 23 where Paul talks about sincerity and says it's not good enough just to be sincere. It is important to also do what the Lord has asked you to do. And as we talked about in our Bible study this morning, Colossians 3 verse 17, to do it by the authority of Jesus Christ. Those four statements and countless others can be made, but based on scripture, these things can't be true. It can't be true that you can just choose any church out of the yellow pages if you still subscribe to those. Uh, It can't be that all roads lead to heaven because Jesus talked about there being the way, the truth, and the life in John chapter 14. So these things can't be true. So I want to talk about five aspects of the Lord's church, both in a universal sense as well as we'll close tonight in a local sense. But we're going to spend just our time tonight talking about a handful of those. We'll talk about three of those things together. I want to start with the origin of the church because it seems to me, again, going back to those three audiences, people who are not Christians or people who come from denominational backgrounds, two, young Christians who are still being grounded in their faith. You may have only been a Christian for a year or two, so you're still learning some of these basic things. And three, those of us who are a little bit older, who've been Christians for a vast majority of our life, uh, we have to teach these things or be able to teach these things to others as well. But it seems to me that we need to go back to the beginning and the origin of the church. First and foremost, this came up in a Bible study that David and I were engaged in just earlier this week with someone, and that is the church did not begin in the lifetime of Jesus Christ. If you say that it did, not only is it inaccurate, but it leads you down a path that creates some real difficulties that you can't otherwise separate or delve into. John, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1, the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And this is in the lifetime of Jesus. And you recall that John the baptizer is the precursor to Jesus. He's laying the groundwork. He's getting people ready. And he says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven, and then notice what he says, is at hand. So the kingdom, which we understand to be the church from other passages, for example, in Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, which we could read if we wanted to take the time, we'll reference it in a few moments, teaches us that the church was at hand. Turn over, if you would, to the book of Mark, chapter 9 and verse 1. Mark chapter 9 verse 1 is where Jesus is going to be transfigured in that spectacular event on the mountaintop. And he says, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present or having come with power. Which tells me that it hasn't happened yet. It's got to happen. So Matthew chapter 3, it's at hand. Mark chapter 9, Jesus himself, the cousin of John the baptizer, says much the same thing. And then in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, if you want to take the time to read those three or four verses, those are the verses that uh, capture the picture of Jesus ascending back to heaven before the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, which is one of the central texts to our discussion tonight. We could spend all of our time just talking about Acts chapter 2. We're going to reference it briefly in just a moment. The fact is, is even though the church is a New Testament topic, I should have put an asterisk next to that because our reading was from Isaiah chapter 2, as we'll reference in just a moment. It is a New Testament concept 
The Old Testament is one that spoke of it. Going back to where Derek did a good job of reading from Isaiah chapter 2, the first three or four verses, it says, Out of Zion, or out of Jerusalem shall go forth, all nations shall be gathered to it. And in Acts chapter 2, what do we find in the first six to seven verses? We find where all nations had come together to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost, which goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, going back to our class Wednesday night three weeks ago. And helps us to understand that indeed the origin of the church did not begin in the lifetime of Jesus Christ. There's a second thing that we need to appreciate about the origin of the church. And that is Jesus and the church go together. Now we look at that as Christians. And I would say that 95% of us, if not 100% of us, have no objection to that. But do realize that so much of the world's population that are religious object to this notion. People say, give me Jesus, but don't give me the church. Give me Jesus as a savior, but I don't want to be a part of any formal religion. I don't want to be a part of an organization called a church. Have you ever met people who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God and I'm a Christian. But so, so where do you attend services? Where are you a part of? What church are you a member of? Well, I don't believe in that. I've met people who believe that. And that's the way that they operate in their lives. But Jesus and the church go together. Let's go through very quickly in rapid fire and look at four passages that I would say either need to be memorized or written in your Bible or written somewhere at least in your heart so that you know these things. In Matthew chapter 16, remember in verse 16 where Simon says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. And I will also say unto you, Peter, that upon this rock, and of course there are some in the world who say that rock is Peter. That's not true. The rock is the confession of Peter. It's what Peter had to say. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the rock-solid foundation. You know, I've been engaged in a study with some people on the other side of the world in 1 Peter. And nowhere in 1 Peter does Peter say, now listen to me because I am the Pope. Listen to me because I am the religious leader. This would have been a perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, and Peter, you're going to be the leader of that church. But Jesus either fails to say that or chooses purposely not to say that because that was not the mission of Peter nor the the thrust of what Jesus was saying here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He, Jesus, would be the one who would purchase it. Remember where Paul is talking to the elders at, at Ephesus who had come over to get counsel and advice and strict teaching from him that Jesus purchased the church with his blood. So he built it, he purchased it, It says that he would be the husband figure in Ephesians chapter 5. We referenced Ephesians 5 very briefly in our Bible class this morning because of its parallels to Colossians chapter 3. But you remember in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 23 through 27, it talks about Jesus having a bride. And the bride is the church. And fourthly... Early on in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, 23 is one of the places that we can look at in addition to Colossians 2 or Colossians 3. But in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, he has put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we then, as members of the Lord's church, as individuals who want to do things in biblical ways... 
We say that since it's his church, he built it, he purchased it, he's the husband figure of it, and it's his body, we ought to call ourselves after his name. And so when we decided to get together and take a poll on what we would call ourselves, but we never took a poll, we just looked and saw what the scripture had to say. We are the church that belongs to God. We are the church that belongs to his son, the church purchased, built by him and therefore we call ourselves the church which belongs to Christ. The unfortunate thing is that denominations which were not in the plan of God, and some would say that denominations, after all, John chapter 15, are the different vines that reach to the branch. Well, we know that's not true. That's not what Jesus was talking about in the book of John. But denominations don't, we understand, adhere to these scriptures. For example, and we can go through and spend all of our time talking about this. When did the church begin? Roughly 33 AD. There's some debate on the, the dating because of the way the Latin calendar corresponds to our calendar. But that's when the church of Christ began. It did not begin in the 300s or 500s. It did not begin in the 1500s with the Reformation. We have brethren and saints that go back thousands of years, all the way back to the time of Peter and Paul and James and John and the likeness of those individuals that we read about in the New Testament. And in fact, a failure to honor the name of Jesus Christ by choosing instead to honor another man, a group of people, a series of methods are all incorrect ways of honoring Jesus the Christ. I mean, think about if Jesus were to show up and we decided to change our name to the, the church of the good guys. He'd say, wait a minute. The good guys didn't pay for it. The good guys didn't purchase it. The good guys didn't bleed for it. So we can't call it that. We call it the church which belongs to Jesus the Christ. We need to be important. Uh, it needs to be important to us to emphasize this concept of the origin of the church. Secondly, I want us to talk for just a couple of moments about the worship of the church. What the church does when it comes together on occasions like this. And we've done a lot of that already today. Uh, we'll do more of it tonight by giving others the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper or to give. And as we sing and pray and as we study. But the New Testament church involved itself in prescribed and meaningful worship of God. And those two things have to be married together. We are prescribed by God what we do when we come together. And it must be meaningful. So many religious folk come together on occasions like this and they just go through the motions. Now, can we do that? Certainly we can. If we're not careful, we'll sing songs without really thinking about them. We pray prayers without really thinking about them. And we'll, uh, when the sermon is going on, maybe our minds go elsewhere. But we need to make sure that we are engaged in meaningful worship. What does that mean? Well, let me share with you just a couple of observations. Number one... We are involved in teaching things correctly, not in vain. Matthew chapter 15 says, The people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There are people that talk a good game, but they do not actively live out the teachings of the gospel. And so that's why when we come together on occasions like this, we spend a, a significant part of our time in public preaching. That is not because the elders who uh, oversee this church and shepherd the flocks said, well, 
When we come together, what are we going to do? How are we going to occupy ourselves? We've got to fill about an hour of time. What are we going to do? That's not what happened. What happened is we looked at what individuals did in the first century and we followed in their pattern of public preaching. And it's not just that that we are engaged in, but it's also private teaching and public teaching. Look at two passages here very quickly in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and then in Acts chapter 8. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in verse 17, the text says the following, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So there is preaching and there is teaching. Now, some would say, well, what's the difference? Well, there are some similarities between the two. And sometimes those of us that preach sometimes teach with preachy tones. I remember when I was in college, uh, I had to take a speech class that was required. And my professor said, you did a decent job. He says, but you were a little bit too preachy. And I thought, hmm, I wonder why. <laughs> but we just stuck with it and he did his thing, I did my thing. We parted our ways. But in Acts chapter 8, notice what it says in verse 30. In Acts chapter 8, turn over to verse 30. You're familiar with this particular text. Philip ran to the Ethiopian, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? And then he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And what did he do? He taught him about Jesus. He taught him the scriptures. He went back to the book of Isaiah where he was reading from. He says, here's what it means Here's what it's about, and here's why it is important. Furthermore, instruction in the Word is what we are interested in. We do not have a creed. We do not have an individual book that outlines our prayers or outlines our beliefs separate from the Bible. I remember years ago, there was a, an event uh, where... A lot of people had been gathered in a church building that had never been in a church building. And someone said, why are there no religious relics around? Because <laughs> they weren't familiar with a building that didn't have the trappings of statues and banners and things like that. And the, remember the preacher responding saying, well, we, we've got a religious relic that's pretty, pretty old and pretty valuable as well. It's this word. That's what we use not just as our historical document, but as our way of living today. We come together, and this is a congregation, I've said this repeatedly, that loves to sing praises to God. And like all of our worshiping, singing is to be in spirit, and singing is to be in truth. It should be with a, an appropriate attitude, and it should be truthful stuff. Our attitude needs to be appropriate when we sing. It ought to be that when we sing songs about God's grace that we are excited. It ought to be when we talk about in songs about the, 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 the man on the cross that our hearts weep because of the things that we are sharing with each other. Furthermore, singing should be done while understanding the words. And so if you come across a song that maybe talks about Ebenezer or talks about a fetter uh, or talks about pinions... Uh, maybe it would be good for you to look those things up. And these days, it's easy. You don't even have to go to that big red book on your shelf. You just type it in. What does pinion mean? So the younger people here, uh, if you know what a pinion is, or Eben Pinion, you can come and share that with me afterwards, and uh, you'll get bonus points for the evening. The other thing is singing should be done as authorized by New Testament example. Because as you are well aware, most 
religious groups do not sing by New Testament example. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, we sing praises to God, and we do so as we talked about very briefly in our Bible study this morning, Colossians 3 and verse 16, that we sing with our voices and not with mechanical instruments. We need to be ready to defend with Colossians 3, 16 and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 and the other seven to six, six or seven passages that deal with the subject of singing. We need to be able to have that conversation. It ought not be that when someone comes to us, group three, as seasoned Christians and say, why is it that you guys don't use instruments? Why is it that you don't do that? That we say, well, that's just what we've always done. That's, that's not the right answer. Uh, and that's what the elders told us to do. That's what the preacher preached. No, the reason we do that is because of what the New Testament pattern says and be able to take them to passages like this. You may not convince them, but at least you can give them a well-ordered, educated answer. Singing collectively, not wherein only some participate. We don't have a choir. We don't have a soloist. We don't have duets that come up and perform. We sing together, and we need to make sure that, again, we are doing that because we know it is the right thing to do because that's what our earliest brothers and sisters did. We come together on occasions like this, and we observe the Lord's Supper. We have authority to do so because of Acts chapter 20 and a command to do so because of that approved example in Acts chapter 20. These New Testament Christians were actually following the instructions of Christ. So you, we know that the book of Acts comes after the book of Matthew. And we need to make sure that we share that message with others. Because Matthew is where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. As well as in the other Gospels. But it is then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or Acts chapter 20. Where we see that executed by the earliest of Christians. Which helps us to follow the biblical pattern. We come together, and what do we do when we worship God? We give of our means. We do not do that, again, because the elders said, well, if we're going to have this organization, we've got to have some way to pay the bills. It was built into the organization of the church that there would be an automatic way for us to provide fundraising for the execution of the gospel and for benevolence, for the teaching of the truth and the support of those who need the assistance. So the only way, the only way, the only way to finance the church, and I'm using that term a little bit loosely, is through the offering of its members. I was sitting down with someone who was not a Christian years ago who was visiting where I was guest preaching at a very, very small church that was struggling financially. And he says, well, why don't you guys do this, this, and this? What other churches are doing to raise funds, to raise capital, to raise money? And we had to lovingly, but yet uh, say, well, wait just a minute here. The reason we don't do that and the reason we can't do that is because the only authorization for fundraising for the church is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as well as maybe 2 Corinthians chapters 7, 8, and 9 as well. We do that each Lord's Day. You ever notice, especially those of you who are really young, uh, maybe uh, haven't really thought about this. Have you ever noticed that when we come together on Wednesday evening, we sing and we pray and we study and we do all those kinds of things, but we do not take up a collection? Most churches would not miss out on that opportunity. Most denominations would say, another opportunity for us to raise money, let's do it. But that's not what the Lord's church is about. We're not about that because that's not what the earliest uh, disciples did. 
And the funds are for the saints. There's probably not a week that goes by, if not a 14-day period that goes by, where David or I on the phone do not have to address this particular issue with someone who calls us. It is apparently gotten out to the world, and I say that somewhat sarcastically, that if you need assistance to pay your rent, if you need transportation, if you just down in your luck, you may not have ever gone to church before, but I'm going to call every church in the book, every church online, and ask them for assistance. And we have to lovingly but yet forcefully say, well, wait a minute now. Uh, the church here is a spiritual organization. We do help out our members, those who are members of the Lord's church, but we have a special relationship with them that does not extend to people of the world when it comes to our financial means. And just because something is a good work or called a good work doesn't mean we have the authorization to spend the Lord's money. True worship of God must be meaningful and never be rote or just habitual. It can't be comprised of repetitive, meaningless statements or things that we say in prayer or in song. If you go back to Matthew chapter 6 or 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you see where that is talked about in great detail. And then let me suggest finally on the subject of worship that it should be organized and it should be respectful. And again, not to uh, call out ourselves as being good at these things, but these are things that I think we do well in, where we have organized, thoughtful worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says that we are to do all things decently and in order. And that's why you don't have uh, someone who says, well, I've I got a song I want to sing now, or I've got a scripture I want to read now. We have it organized, and we have it in a, in a way that is respectful and meaningful and in line with the spirit of the New Testament Christians that we follow. Well, let me close with a third and a final thing that I think is very, very important because I have run across people who say, you know what? I'm a Christian, but I don't want to be a part of a local church. Now, we know that we are members of the Lord's church in a universal sense. At least I hope we know that. We can read that, that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. And the word church is used in a couple of different ways. It is used in at least two very basic ways. One is a general or universal that is reflective of all that Jesus built. So in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, where it says uh, that God added them to the church such as we're saved, God did not add you to the church at Northfield Boulevard. You are not baptized into the church at Northfield Boulevard, even if you were baptized in these waters. So those of you that, again, that are younger and are still learning some of these things, just because you obey the gospel here doesn't make you a member of the Lord's church at Northfield Boulevard. You are a member of the Lord's church in a universal sense because you've been baptized into a body of believers, Galatians 3, verses 26 through 27, or furthermore, as illustrated as on the screen, into the church which Jesus built. Verse 18. Now, if that's the only church membership that you are ever experiencing, that's not good enough. 
because you need to be a part of a local church as well. So there's a second usage of the term, and that is a local, specific, associated generally with a particular geographic location. And in the New Testament, there's lots of them. The church at Sardis, the church at church at Philadelphia, the church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, and as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, the churches at Philippi and Colossae. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2 is a section that we kind of just read over because it's the introduction to the letter, but you recall here where it says, to the church of God which is at Corinth. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he was not writing to the churches at Galatia or at Ephesus or Philippi or Thessalonica or Sardis or Philadelphia. Now, it may be that that letter was circulated around to other other churches, as was common in the first century. But he was addressing the particular needs and issues of the church at Corinth. And each church is autonomous in the governance of itself, where the elders oversee that particular group. The fact is, is God adds us to the church after we do what New Testament Christians did. What did they do? Well, if you want to jot these verses down, but again, these should probably be memorized by most of us who are a little bit older. If you're trying to teach someone, you need to at least be able to go somewhere in your Bible and share with them that you've got to believe. You've got to have faith in Jesus the Christ. In fact, there's there's hardly a, a time that we come together we don't talk about that. In an invitation talk, in one of our Bible classes, that faith in Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. If a person says, well, I want to be a part of the church, I want to be a part of this organization that you're talking about, but I don't believe in Jesus, we have a real problem where we've got to cross a bridge that's going to be a tough one. Until they believe and have faith in Jesus, that's not going to happen. We want to get them to have faith in Jesus and then get them to make a change in the way that they conduct themselves. Acts 2 verse 38 is the answer where Peter says, what do you want to do? Oh, you want to change your life? You've been cut to the heart. Verses 36, 37, you need to repent of your sins and be baptized. Of course, it involves a confession. Uh, We've talked before that a person can't be private in his or her faith. It's not that we have to broadcast it to the world every day by the way that we talk, although we do need to broadcast it to the world by the way that we talk. It's that we need to be willing to confess, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and then be baptized for the mission of sins. All of these are part and parcel to being a member of the Lord's church. And the interesting thing, going back to the analogy of the waters here at Northfield Boulevard, that a lot of us, in fact, if we were to do a poll, my guess would be the majority of us were not baptized at Northfield Boulevard. The majority of us were baptized in different states, perhaps in different countries, thousands of miles from here, but yet we're members of this local organization. Now, this is the subject that I want to end on because this is very important for us to get. Because I run across people, and we sometimes have individuals who will worship with us, who say, well, I'm worshiping with you, but does that mean I'm a member with you? Well, you're a member of this church when you choose to become a member of this church. But of course, as having shepherds, there is the unique responsibility that they have, along with the rest of us, to make sure that not just anybody can be a member of the church in Northfield Boulevard. Now, some in the world would say, that sounds very snooty of you. I don't care how it sounds. Not just anybody can be a part of this congregation. 
And if we had shepherds who said, we'll allow anybody in, we're going to very quickly have a talk with them. Are we not? Because that's not right. Because this is an organization that is pure, that we're trying to be sinless. We're not perfect, but we're doing our very best to do what the Lord asks us to do. And it is true. The New Testament church doesn't explicitly discuss the phrase local church membership. But scriptures do teach that Christians identified themselves with particular congregations. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, Peter writes and he says, The elders, like I am a fellow elder, those who shepherd the flocks which are among you. And so if our three shepherds receive a call from a church in Wyoming and the church in Wyoming says, hey, uh, we need to know what we need to do uh, here at our local church. Our local shepherds are going to scratch their heads and say, not sure why you're calling me. Now, if you need to study the Bible, we'll be happy to do so. But if you're talking about how many songs you're going to sing and uh, who's going to preach for you and uh, how you're going to dole out benevolence funds, that's something that you've got to decide for yourself. Because you are over that church just as we are over this local church here. Elders must be able to identify their flock. And so it works the other way as well. Our elders have an enormous responsibility of overseeing almost 200 souls. And as a result of that, they've got to know who those 200 some souls are, almost 200 souls are. And they have to be able to identify that flock. And so if you have not said to those elders, I want to work with you, I want to work with this church, how can they know to be watching over your souls? That's why local church membership is so essential. And I say that because there are those who would suggest otherwise. And so when you move from one location to another location because of job or retirement or children or grandchildren, you join yourself to a local church that is different. We have had people just in the last two weeks who have left this location because they have moved to a different location. And you guess what? They're no longer members here. Does that mean that we're upset with them? Of course not. But they are no longer members of this church. We don't have the unique responsibility to them that we have to our brothers and sisters who are part of this congregation and vice versa. I mean, let's be very frank about it, that when they're writing their checks... They're no longer writing it to us, and rightly so. They are a part of that organization. They're the ones who are providing meals. They are the ones who are providing rides. They are the ones who are doing all the things that we do locally here. And like New Testament Christians, we need to be associated with a local congregation. I would say that this would be a a good one. But we have people who sometimes cross our paths that don't necessarily land with us, and that's okay. Because we're not recruiting people for the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ, although we speak highly of it. We're recruiting people for the universal church that belongs to Jesus Christ. That's what we want people to be a part of. And that's what we're asking you to be a part of as well. Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll talk about the organization of the church. And we'll talk about what the mission of the church is all about. I appreciate your patience tonight. I know we went quickly through that. I'm happy to share with you my notes if those are helpful to you. But I am sincere that all three audiences need to be respected. Those who are not Christians or who have come from a denominational background. Those who are young in their faith that need to be grounded. And then those of us that maybe have been around for a little while that need to make sure that we know these things to be true. 
If you are not a Christian tonight, guess what you need to do? Well, I won't repeat it, but you need to do those things that are taught in Scripture that we talked about just a few moments ago. And you'll join the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. If you live in this area, we invite you to talk then with our elders. And if that's something that you're interested in being a part of this particular location. But we are interested in your spiritual salvation, your spiritual condition, your spiritual priorities. If we can help you to become a Christian or to pray with you so that you can become stronger as an erring Christian to become a stronger child of God. Let us know while together we stand, while we sing.